Good morning. Oh, awesome. You guys are awake. First service didn't do so well on that question. Well, it's great to be with you. My name is Dave Patch, and I'm one of the pastors here at LifePoint. And uh, some of you got introduced to me and my family uh, through the video you saw last week as we were doing the Catalyst update. Uh, tell you a little bit about myself. I have three kids and one wife. I highly recommend that ratio. Three wives is kind of a non-starter, men, so just kind of file that away as notes to yourself. Three wives doesn't work. It's kind of a non-starter for ministry, too. Uh, I've been doing ministry uh, in a campus context, in a church context, for 25 years. Uh, Kara and I did 18 years with a campus ministry, and then the last seven at another church as executive pastor. And then since June, June 18th, I started here at LifePoint, and it's a real thrill to be with you, real joy. I had an old preacher friend that used to say that when you're in ministry, you get paid to be good, and everyone else is good for nothing. And I don't think that's true. For most of us, yeah. But it's a real joy to be with you on this Thanksgiving weekend. I don't know about you, but I had a great uh, celebration with my family. Uh, Sometimes the crowd's a little bit lighter on Thanksgiving. And uh, so I'm just grateful to be here with you, the proud, the few that made it to church, the people that can't afford to travel. (laughs) But we're going to be talking uh, this morning about something that I think most of us have experienced. And you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever had a moment when you thought God had forgotten you? You ever had a time in your life when you thought, God doesn't seem to be present? I know early on in my ministry career, we were working, and I was working by myself. I'm a team guy. I do much better in a team situation. And I had a year where I was working 100% by myself, nobody else involved. And we were in a supported ministry, so we raised support. And during that year, we had lost our largest supporter. So our paycheck, as meager as it was, was actually much lower than it should have been because we didn't have enough money coming in to support our ministry. And the results on the campus we were working on weren't that good. And I actually had some ministry strife with another ministry. We had started a ministry there. I had started there. And they didn't want me there. So they were working behind the scenes with the administration and with others to try to get me physically banned from being on campus to do ministry. And we had our first baby on the way, and I wasn't feeling like much of a provider. And everything was just seeming to be going very poorly. And I'm thinking, Lord, I'm in ministry full time. Aren't you supposed to show up for people like me? And I remember I got together with one of my friends who had a a vested interest in me staying and being involved in ministry. And I told him about all that was going on that year. And I said, what do you think I should do? And he said, Dave, get a moving truck, pack up, and get out of here. This isn't the place for you. And I thought, that wasn't the encouragement I was hoping to hear. That year, I kind of felt like God had abandoned me. And some of you have had experiences like that. There are times when you felt that way. Maybe sickness has come. Maybe there's strife in your home. Maybe things aren't going well at work. You didn't get the bonus you wanted. Some of you had to sit next to crazy Uncle Joe at Thanksgiving dinner. And some of us have experienced significant losses. Someone close to us has passed, or we've lost a job, or we're not sure how we're going to be able to make the mortgage payment. And it's times like that that you begin to wonder, where is God in all of this? And this morning, we're going to be looking at a story of a couple of sisters and their brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they were experiencing a moment like that. Things were not going well for them. In fact, they were going very badly. In in truth, Things couldn't have gone any worse for Lazarus. And they were close to Jesus. 
and they sent for him. They were beginning to ask that question, where is Jesus? And we're going to kind of look at the story in four sections. We're going to just take a look at the scripture and then we're going to kind of talk about it. Now, I want you to understand this. I'm going to do a little bit of uh, kind of reading between the lines of the scripture to try to highlight what I think is some of the drama that is going on with Mary and Martha and Jesus and the disciples. And I want you to know this. If what I say you don't like, you can just chalk it up to preacher spin and just ignore it. But my big encouragement to you is as we look at the scriptures together is to pay attention to what they say and to believe every word of that. Now, the ushers are going to come down the aisle and they have a Bible for you. We would love to give you a Bible this morning if you don't have one. Uh, we'll be going through the verses in John chapter 11. They'll also be up on the side screens. So if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that, keep it. It's a gift from us to you. We'd love to give that to you. If you just want to borrow it for the service, pass it back at the end on your way out, that's fine as well. But we're happy to have you have that scripture. So let me set the story, scene for you a little bit with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. These are some siblings that live in the town of Bethany, which is not far from Jerusalem. And they have been very close to Jesus' ministry. Jesus has been in their home. He's been connected with them. And they are tight. And they live in Bethany, but Jesus isn't there. He's actually out across the river, kind of outside of Israel a little bit, doing some ministry. So if you think of it as if this was where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived, Jesus is kind of out in Zebulon, across the river, doing some ministry out there with those folks. And then we come to this place where the story starts to pick up. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 11 starting in verse 3, and we're just going to read the scripture together. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said to the disciples, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, He stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back there? So this is kind of an odd situation. Jesus loves the three of them. Scripture is very clear on that. Yet when he hears that Lazarus is sick, he doesn't hurry back. He doesn't hurry back at all. Now think about it. When would you send a message to Jesus? He's got a cold. He might be coming down with something. No, they've sent a message across this great distance by foot to Jesus because it's serious. You don't get a message in those days, hey, the one you love is sick, unless it was very, very serious. And Jesus loves them, yet he waits. He waits two whole days. He does exactly the opposite of what you would think. And then after he waits, knowing that Lazarus is ill, He says to the disciples that the sickness won't end in death. So there's really kind of no rush. But then two days later, when he decides to go back, he says to the 12, okay, let's go. And they kind of have a little question. Can you imagine the 12 of them having a conversation together? And they kind of, somebody brings forward to Jesus. "Um, Jesus, it's cool and all that you want to go back to that whole Judea thing. But, you know, the last two times we were there didn't go so well. In fact, the religious leaders... I don't know if you remember this, you know, kind of happened twice, but they've got rocks. I mean, they've got big rocks and they've got a lot of them and they've, you know, kind of given us the indication they would like to apply them to us forcefully. You sure you want to go back to Judea? Because they're thinking, okay, you've already told us Lazarus isn't going to die. It's not going to end in death. So 
He's going to be okay. We're safe over here. Why are we going? So they bring this up to Jesus and doesn't phase him. And he says, well, we're going. So look on down in verse 14. So he told them then plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas called Didymus said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Oh, you're seeing it already, aren't you? Yeah. So Jesus has this situation. He makes clear to the disciples now that Lazarus is dead, but that makes no sense. If he's dead, why are we going back? And also we got a little problem because you told us this wouldn't end in death. And now you tell us that he is dead. I mean, make up your mind. Which is it? And why are we going? So Thomas's statement here I love because I think it's like, you know, either... Either he's very, very sarcastic, which I'm kind of lean towards, or he's kind of one of these, you know, kind of clueless, gullible guys. You know, kind of the, well, let us go back there too, that we may die with him. Or I can picture it more like this. Thomas is saying, yeah, let's go back there so that we can die with him. It doesn't seem like much of a plan. certainly doesn't seem like a good plan to the disciples. And after all, Lazarus is already dead. But the story moves on quickly. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, and he is asking for you. Now, isn't this an interesting conversation? This isn't like, you know, a couple of celebrities discussing their their latest blockbuster movie. This is much more like interesting, like the conversation you have with your teenager when they're three hours late for curfew and they haven't called. This conversation is not going the way we would pick, we would think. This is Martha. When Jesus came to their home previously, she was the one that was doing all the work, preparing all the dishes. She was the worried and distracted one. Her brother had died, and she rushes out to meet Jesus. And can you picture the tone of this conversation? To me, I think Martha, who was willing to demand that Jesus order her sister to get up and help her previously, I think Martha's angry. Because when you see her words, she says, kind of an accusing tone, I think, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. To her, Jesus had done a bad thing. He had abandoned them in their hour of need. And Lazarus, her brother, Jesus supposedly loved, had died as a result. She isn't questioning his power. She makes very clear she knows he could have done something. She's questioning his plan. What were you doing? Why did you not come when you heard? Look what's happened as a result. Jesus makes Martha a very specific promise in the midst of her anger. And she kind of morphs into a typical churchgoer of our day. 
Did you see that happen there? She says, Jesus says to her, Martha, your brother will rise again. And she can't take that at face value. She has to kind of do something with it. We know it can't, can't mean what it looks like it means. So she kind of spiritualizes. And she goes into a little bit of a theological statement. And she responds to his promise with a creed. Yes, I know that you are the Christ. And it is a great statement of orthodox belief. But Jesus is telling her something more than theology. So he asks her the question, do you believe this? Jesus is asking her in the midst of her pain to trust him. He's asking her, will you trust me? But she needs to know, does he love her? And he wants to know if she can do this despite the clear problem of her brother being dead. So how does she respond? I love this about Martha. Jesus has said some things she doesn't quite get. So she goes back home and says to the sister, hey, Mary, Jesus is here and he's asking for you. Now, there's nothing in the text that says Jesus said that, but I think Martha is saying, hey, I don't really get what's going on. Maybe Mary can figure it out. Mary, get out there. You go try to figure this out. I had round one. But don't worry about Martha. She's going to get another shot at this. So we look down to verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Now, remember Mary? She's the one who anointed Jesus' feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. When Jesus came to their home, she's the one who sat at his feet, soaking up what he was saying while her sister was scurrying around, preparing things. And here again, when she comes to Jesus, she falls at his feet. Now, I don't know about you, but it's not been too, too many times in my life when I've collapsed from an emotional reaction to something that's gone on. Can you think of any times? I know I was a little weak-kneed when my children were born. But the last time that I really remember collapsing was a day that I think you all remember. I grew up in North Jersey. And uh, one of the things that we did in North Jersey when you were kind of lost, there was these really tall buildings in Manhattan called the World Trade Centers. And when you were lost, if you would look that direction and you could find the World Trade Center, you had a pretty good idea where you were north-south. And you had a pretty good idea where to go. So lots of times when you're driving on the highway and you're wondering, where am I? And that happens a lot in New Jersey. So roads are not clearly marked all the time. There's exits and... You just wonder what that is and where it goes, but you don't take it because you're not sure. But you would use the World Trade Center to orient yourself. So on September 11th, 2001, after the buildings had been hit, I stayed home. And I was watching the the coverage. And I had a sister-in-law that worked in that area. And when the first tower started to fall, I was standing in my living room. I remember it very vividly. And I collapsed to my knees saying, no, 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 this cannot be. And that's kind of the reaction that Mary has with Jesus. She is at his feet. She is always at his feet. And though Mary uses nearly the exact same words as Martha, you can tell this is a very different conversation. She's weeping. Jesus makes her no promises. All he does is begin to cry with her. And the scripture here is really clear. It says that he was deeply moved. In the original language, 
This is kind of this concept of kind of your insides being turned upside down and twisted over. You know that feeling when you get some kind of a news that emotions just kind of crush your heart, that they weigh in on you, that you physically feel pain? I think that's what the scripture is describing here with Jesus, that he was deeply moved and kind of feels her pain and begins to weep. And it says that he's troubled. So why is Jesus crying? Is he crying for Lazarus? That's what the crowd thinks. They see him crying and say, oh, see how much he loved him. But I don't think Jesus is crying for Lazarus. He knows what he's about to do. He's not weeping for him. Is he weeping for himself because he lost a good friend? No. He knows what he's about to do. He's not weeping for himself because he lost a good friend. Jesus is weeping because the one he loves is weeping. Mary has fallen at his feet, tortured with pain. And she is crying, and he cries with her. And he uses that emotional pain to take action. And all he says to the crowd is, hey, where have you laid him? Let's go to the tomb. And he doesn't stop to get a drink. He doesn't stop to greet other friends. He doesn't freshen up at all. He simply says, okay, let's go. Let's do this. And he moves straight to the tomb. And pick it up in verse 38. The scene moves to the tomb. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. And it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Now here's Martha's second chance, okay? They get to the tomb, and Jesus says, he's already told her, your brother's going to rise again. And he says, roll away the stone. But Martha, oh no, Captain Obvious, she feels the need to remind Jesus. Um, Jesus, I don't know if you have much experience with these whole dying things. Rolling the stone away, not good. Don't do it. Let's see if she passes the test. Story picks up right there, uh, going on from verse 40. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Martha passed the test. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, and his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So they roll the stone away, and then Jesus prays. But isn't this a really strange prayer? Okay? Isn't this a strange prayer? He doesn't pray for the Father to give him strength to do this. There's no pleading. There's no incantations. There's no asking God, give me the power to do something here. He simply says, hey, Father, thanks for hearing me. Oh, I I know you always hear me. But I pray this so that the people standing around will know that you hear me and that you sent me. I mean, I don't know about you, but I think this is where most pastors get this idea of praying and they're not really talking to God, they're talking to the crowd. Have you ever seen that? Those moments when they start praying and it's really, they're talking more to you than they are to the Father. But Jesus actually prays and is this odd prayer. He's like, hey, we're tight. I know. You know. We know. 
oh, me, I'm, I'm only talking to you out loud so the people around here will get it, that they know that we're tight and, you know, it's cool. It is a strange little prayer. But Jesus prays very specifically, very publicly, so that others would understand what is about to happen. And then he does a second strange thing. He talks to a dead man. Now, I don't have a lot of experience with bodies. But I know this. In general, people don't speak to dead people. You know, in the movies, and I'm sure this is how it must be, right? When you try to get someone to come back from the dead, you know, you got to kind of jolt them with electricity like Frankenstein. Or you have to, you know, do some incantations or some magic potions. You got to do something kind of dramatic. And Jesus does none of that. He just speaks. And then there is this amazing scene. Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Can you picture it? I mean, picture this. He's dead. He's buried. He's wrapped up in the grave clothes and he comes out of the tomb. I mean, he must have been doing this. And people are stunned. They are so stunned that Jesus has to say, Hey, uh, you guys want to unwrap him? Uh, He's kind of wrapped up there. Kind of get that stuff off of him so he can move around. And with three little words from the Savior, the entire situation has changed. They move from anger and grief and despair and hopelessness to amazement and joy. And you would think that at that moment that everybody would be worshiping. The dead man just came out of the tomb. We had to unwrap him. This is unbelievable. Did you see that? And some did. Scripture tells us some worshipped and they believed in him. And they got the message. But there were some who didn't. All they could do was run to the religious leaders of the day and say, Hey, you guys are not going to believe the miracle Jesus did this time. I think you've got a big problem. So they didn't let what had happened actually sink in to themselves. They hadn't allowed what they'd seen to become personalized to them. So what can we learn from this? Where is Jesus when we are struggling with difficult circumstances or when life seems completely out of control? The first thing we learn is this. Although no one involved understood, Jesus had a plan all along. Although no one involved understood, Jesus had a plan all along. He told the disciples, I have a plan. This is going to end in me being glorified and the Father being glorified. Don't worry about it. But they didn't understand. They feared for their lives. They didn't want to go help Lazarus. They were focused on themselves. Mary and Martha felt pretty abandoned. They didn't like the plan. The plan meant that they had to suffer and go through this difficult time. Lazarus didn't look like a good plan to him either. He died. I mean, the plans don't get much worse when you die, right? Lazarus died. But Jesus did have a plan. And even though everybody involved didn't know it and didn't understand it, he had not abandoned them. He was actually working through them and their neighbors. And he was working on them and working on their neighbors and working on us through the scriptures. Their suffering was not purposeless. And in the midst of difficulty, we must believe that God is good. Second thing we learn. Although difficult to see in the middle, Jesus' love is always demonstrated in the end. 
Though difficult to see in the middle, Jesus' love is always demonstrated in the end. I don't know about you, but I've always found that difficult circumstances are hard to understand when you're in the midst of them. When the pain is overwhelming, or the challenges are coming, or you need to write the check and the money is in the account, or people are calling and asking you for money, or you're wondering where are these things going to come from? What is going to happen to us? It is difficult to see God's plan. Because all we can focus on in that time because of our emotional response is our circumstances. It's difficult to step back and see the broader scheme of things, the big plan, what God might be doing. And it's only with time and perspective that we sometimes can see what God is doing. When my children were little, uh, they all had moments where they were a little bit afraid of the dark. You know, everything would be fine during the day. You turn out the lights and all of a sudden everything that was familiar becomes scary. So we would do this little game that we call that I called it a dark adventure. And before they had to be up there alone, we would turn out the lights upstairs where usually they were most afraid. And we'd sit at the top of the stairs with the light down below, but darkness in front of us. And we'd say, what do you see? And they'd say, nothing. It's scary. And I'd say, I know. Wait, wait. What do you see? Can you see anything down the hall? And after a while, they'd say, well, I can see the walls. I can see the walls too. I I can see the door to my room. I can see that too. You're starting to adjust. You're beginning to understand what it's like to walk in darkness a little bit. So let's go a little bit forward. And in their fear, we would usually crawl forward to the edge of their room and we'd peer in. What can you see? Nothing. Keep looking. I see my bed. I I see my dresser. I see my toys over there on the floor. I see a chair. Yes. Do you see your window? Yes. Do you see the curtains? Yes. Do you see your closet? Yes. It's harder to see now, isn't it? But you can still see. It's difficult. You have to look carefully. But you can still see reality, can't you? Yes, Dad. And over time, after playing that game over and over and over, we'd come to the point where we would be able to say, the darkness is a lot like the light. It's just a little harder to see. There's nothing to be afraid of in the darkness. And the thing that Jesus wants us to understand in the midst of this is do not doubt in the darkness what you've learned in the light. It is still true. It is still true. We have to trust this love. Third, sometimes it's not about you. And God uses our suffering to bring glory to himself. There are times, like for Lazarus, where our difficulty and pain, and yes, sometimes even our deaths, God uses to bring glory to himself so that others might see and believe and be transformed. Sometimes God has a higher purpose than your pain. Sometimes he wants to build something into you that you could not have learned any other way than by going through this difficulty. Sometimes he wants to deepen your faith and he has to bring you to places where faith is difficult so you can exercise it so that you know without a doubt that you trust. Sometimes, like Job in the Old Testament, God uses us in our pain and our difficulty just to make a point spiritually to the universe. That yes, he is worth following even when the blessings dry up. It is worth being a Christ follower, even when the trinkets don't come. And we have to trust that God can use our story and his story for his glory. I'll close with this. I've seen this in my life many times. A while back when my daughter was very young, uh, my wife and I trusted her to a woman that we thought was trustworthy. And we put her in a room and the woman um, stabbed her three times with a piece of metal. 
My daughter was just a toddler. And uh, everything was fine and dandy until this woman stuck her in the leg. And she began to cry. This is not good. And she began to cry a little bit. And when the woman came back again with another piece of metal and stabbed her again, she began to wail. I mean, she was inconsolable. She was just sobbing as a toddler. She didn't understand what was going on. This woman is hurting her. And she is sobbing. And when the woman came back the third time, she began to scream and try to get out of the chair that she was sitting in. And she's screaming, no, daddy, no, daddy, no, daddy. She's trying to get away. And the woman stabbed her again. See, what she didn't know, what she couldn't have known as a toddler, was that woman was a nurse. And she was giving her injections that were going to inoculate her from diseases that could wreck and ravage her life. And as her parents, her loving parents, we had to make her go through that pain to accomplish something she didn't understand. And as she's screaming, no, daddy, no, daddy. You might be wondering, where, where was her dad in the midst of this? Where was he? I was right there in the chair, holding her, holding her still so that that nurse could stab her and save her life. Where was her father? He was right there in the midst of it, weeping with her, crying with her, holding her, consoling her. Where is Jesus in our pain, in our struggle? He is right there. Comforting you, holding you, loving you, and crying with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that gives us insight into life and insight into our difficulties in ways that we never imagined. And Lord, we pray that you would use your scriptures to bring hope and healing in the midst of difficult times. Father, I know there are people in the room today that are struggling. They're hurting, and they are wondering where you are. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to them today. Holy Spirit, would you touch their hearts and minds? Would you let them know that you are present, that you are in the midst of it, and that you have a plan, and that is good? Lord, would you demonstrate your love toward us, even today, as we trust you? In Christ's name we pray.